Welcome everyone to week five, guys, I've been five weeks already, of Inside the CCL, the week where things get serious. Uh, we are five-sevenths of the way through. So the CCL so far, week five. This is a graph that Steve made of some score. So basically it's the number of matches you've won or lost that are more than zero. So if you go three, two, as an example, in a set, the team that has three points will be plus one match. And the team that has two will be minus one match because they won two, lost two, and then they lost another one, so they're minus one. So you can kind of see that if you look at it from this perspective, there's some clear categories, shall we say. Uh, the three top teams, Crowd Control, Oxygen, and Wildheart at plus eight, plus seven, and plus six, respectively. And then you have four teams kind of in the middle, 30K at plus one, Sidestep Kings at minus one, Granite at minus two, and Simplicity at minus four, and then Chili Mountain at minus 15. Now, minus 15 is the actual worst you could be at this point in the league because it's five weeks of best of fives, which means you're playing three matches minimum per week. If you lose all of them, you'll be minus 15. If you win even a single match, you would be minus 14. So that's pretty bad. It's worth noting that Chili Mountain had literally played with their roster for the first time ever this week since they are changing their roster. They dropped CPX and Mystocles. They picked up GA and Galne. Galne did not play this week for some reason. I, I don't I don't know exactly what's going on with that. Maybe that's something that chat knows more about than I do, actually, since some of those people are in chat. But yeah, Simplicity acquired Masquerade. It didn't really seem to make a difference, but again, it is the first week. It does take a little while to build up synergy. For instance, I think Oxygen started started scrimming literally the day after the draft, like almost. The Monday after draft started, we already had a scrim schedule set up and we were already scrimming. It's not that we scrimmed a whole lot more than other teams, it's just that we started scrimming earlier than other teams. I think most teams are on a pretty similar schedule by now. But I would say it took three weeks before I thought our roster had started to develop some really solid synergy. At this point, essentially, Chili Mountain and even Simplicity to some degree are playing for playoffs. They are not gonna be able to improve their standings enough in order to get into the top three. For those of you who don't know, the way playoffs work is one through three are seeded into the top half of the playoffs automatically. Teams four through eight have to go through a step ladder playoff. So seven plays eight, the seventh seed plays the eighth seed, the winner of that plays the sixth seed, the winner of that plays the fifth seed, the winner of that plays the fourth seed, and the winner of that ends up in the top four. Yes, for all intents and purposes, eighth does equal seventh place. There's actually not a significant difference. Then this gives first seed a huge advantage by the way. The advantage of first seed is that you will have gotten to see more drafts in the playoff runoff of whatever team makes it through. And then as first seed, you'll be seeded against the team that won the stepladder playoff. Now, sometimes there's a psychological factor there where those teams have momentum because they've, you know, made it through this gauntlet, especially if they started lower down. Uh, but giving away all that draft information, pretty questionable. It, it, it's not an advantage. So first seed is almost guaranteed, I want to say, like essentially to make it to the top two in playoffs. Whereas the two three seeds having to play each other, that's going to be a much tighter series. And I bring this up because for most scenarios, it kind of feels like this next week, auction versus crowd control is going to kind of determine who ends up being first seed. There's some scenarios where the weekend after that matters a little bit. That's why I'm bringing it up. It's very nice to see it outlined in this form. You see it outlined like this, you might think trades are bad for a team, but trades aren't necessarily bad for a team. If you have a problem and the problem is like a disagreement and you, you've tried everything and you can't get people to agree on how the game should be played, obviously replacing someone is gonna help, but it does take time to build up that synergy. It's not necessarily bad that these trades are happening, no matter what the graph looks like. <laughs>
Also worth noting that Crowd Control has two trades left, Auction has two trades left, Wildheart has two trades left, SSK has two trades left, Granite has one trade left, and Simplicity, Chili Mountain, and 30k have used up all of their transactions, their trade transactions for the season. So Saturday was um, insane. I don't, I don't think there's another word <laughs> to describe Saturday, to be honest. How much does this picture change if Simplicity beats Wildheart this weekend? Depends on how hard they beat them, but it would definitely change map score. For the record, it goes by standing, so total set series. So for instance, a team that was 7-0 is guaranteed to have first place because they obviously beat another team. But if two teams are 6-1, it goes by some score. So each individual map matters. And if that is tied, it goes by head to head. There's actually a debate going on in the CCL Discord right now about which of those is better. You guys can feel free to go join that if you want to. So first match of the day on Saturday, both matches on Saturday went to all five games. It's probably the best single day of CCL, assuming you watched the whole thing live so far. Incredibly interesting competitive matches. 30K versus Wildheart. Uh, 30K took game one, Wildheart took two more games, and you can see Wildheart clutched it out 3-2 in the end. This was a pretty, pretty difficult series for both teams. There were some execution mistakes. There were some extremely interesting drafts. Uh, we got a lot of questions about some of the Wildheart drafts, so we'll be going into those in a bit more detail. This is an important victory for Wildheart and a really important loss for 30k, because 30k came out of the gate expecting to be a really good team. Everyone was hyping them up. If you look at BBJ's tier list, there are two teams that had three S-tier players. 30k was one of them, and Oxygen was the other one. And you can go listen to their comms which I think is an interesting factor because Hasu uh, does stream. It feels like 30k doesn't really have a shot caller. So against a team like Wildheart that's doing some really unusual stuff, yeah, against a team that does different stuff, having a really clear cohesive plan and centralized shot calling where the game is in someone's mind and information can change that plan, but everyone on the team can feed the shot caller information. Like feeding information is something that everyone should know how to do. That's not shot calling, that's feeding information. Granite Gaming versus Oxygen, we dropped the first two games. These were rough games too. You know, it's the first Alex Raza pick in CCL. We set ourselves up for a really hard game in game one. Granite responded with a really interesting comp, which is essentially all melee. Technically D.Va is kind of a ranged hero in some scenarios, but all melee with the Lucio for the movement speed. Very, very clever from them. And Dragonshire and Cursed Hollow, these were games where we strictly won the draft in my opinion. We, we strictly won the draft. And then Garden of Terror, I would also say we actually had the better draft, but it came down to one late game team fight where we made a mistake. And that's sort of how Garden of Terror is, unfortunately, as a map. It's why I didn't want it in the CCL map pool. It's why a lot of pros didn't want it in the CCL map pool. Garden is a map where you're basically guaranteed to get to 20 if both teams play correctly and don't int. And then at that point, for those of you who uh, don't keep up, the way it works, is the loser of a game gets to choo choose between first pick and map pick. Because drafting is almost universally easier from first pick, most people choose first pick, which means that if you, generally speaking, if you see a team won the previous game, they pick the map. I think there's been Wildheart and one other team that has actually taken map pick over first pick. And sadly, Sunday, day two of CCL this weekend, was Sidestep Kings. Uh, ends up 3-0-ing the Reborn Chili Mountain, but again, Chili Mountain not necessarily going to have that synergy. And then Crowd Control ends up 3-0-ing Simplicity. The Simplicity series 
shouldn't have been quite as one-sided as it ended up being. And there's a lot of questions about that in, in the question. So we're going to we're gonna talk about that a little bit. But that's the standings. That's where we're at. The big match next week, like the huge match next week, in my opinion, is auction versus crowd control. And we're actually going to have crowd control's owner, Turk, on a little bit later and ask him if he feels the same way. Could draft pick ban order be updated? So first pick isn't so advantageous or is it unavoidable? I have actually proposed a rule multiple times. I proposed this during HTC. I uh, used this rule for the only professional amateur tournament ever hosted in HOTS, as far as I know. It was four HTC teams versus four amateur teams. And I think it's a good rule. The rule is this. You get both. If you lose, you get first pick and map pick. This would make series significantly closer, but it would make the first game usually the most important game in the series. You would break advantage, right? So you would win first game, you would lose the second game, you would win the third game, you'd lose the fourth game, and you would win the fifth game. I don't know if that's a good rule, for the record. It worked extremely well in the professional amateur tournament. Professional amateur tournament, the rule was the amateur team always gets first pick and map pick for game one, and then it had the normal rule. Loser gets either first pick or map pick. Drafting is so important in HOTS that it would make series significantly closer. I don't necessarily know if it would make series more interesting to watch or more interesting to play. So the question here is, Justin and Zergling die on their first Webweaver, chasing a kill, D.Va. This is, to me, makes it look like they lost all momentum. So this is the first Webweaver turn in. It doesn't really look like they're chasing a kill. Like, they're just sort of setting up for the push. They die at the end of Weavers. I mean, okay, but if they die at the end of Weavers, it's not necessarily a mistake, right? So generally speaking for Webweavers, let, let's outline the rules here first. Generally speaking for Webweavers, if you get the turn in, the enemy team does not want to fight you. If you get a kill, then you negate the value of the turn in in a lot of cases. But if you die, the turn in basically doubles in value in a lot of cases. The risk versus reward isn't there, right? So the enemy team turns in, the first thing you do is back off, try to shove your lanes and don't die. While the team that got the turn in, if you're overextended, should try to fight you. Because again, if they get that kill, the risk doubles and you're trying to disengage. You're not trying to fight them. So you have a team that kind of gets more benefit and has less to lose from taking the fight. But 30k does the correct thing. They back up, they start clearing. And here is where you get an interesting moment. Deathwing R's in as the Webweaver is nearly dead. Now, bottom's already clear. Top has been chunked. You can kind of see on the minimap, the wave, the blue wave is coming up and the orange wave is dead. So we see the Deathwing coming in. This is the time where you want to potentially force a fight. If Webweavers are dealt with in the other lanes and a team is hard pushing a lane as five, that means that they're really far into your lane. Assuming the Webweaver has actually been dealt with and its threat is somewhat mitigated, the mistake here, if anything, is the Wildheart didn't back off and kept going. They got the silence bottle, Wicked goes in. Uh, the problem is Unaverted is not in range. Funds is in range, but if we could scroll back a little bit further, you can see Funds already used Hydra. He already used Bile Drop. I think he should have already used them. It's a creep tumor. No, and there's Hydra. So yeah, that's it. And they don't have enough CC to prevent BBJ from healing himself. So BBJ gets the heal off relatively trivially. They get the counter engage. And at this point, Justing should have immediately left, right? Almost as soon as that comes in because they used all their cooldowns, didn't get a kill. Unaverted not being in range was the real problem here. Generally speaking, both of your DPS need to be in range in order to get a kill. So you wouldn't normally even commit to a kill, but BBJ was really low. It's marginal, right? It's very close, but tower diving is extremely risky now. At best, that's a one for one. And it's worth noting that the way the experience modifier works is it takes total experience into account. It's not just level difference. So if you're up in experience, it's always better to trade one for one for the team that's down in experience. So they didn't respect the counter engage and they can see on the minimap too, like Deathwing is clearing top. Deathwing is now out of vision. 
But if someone was watching the minimap, they would have seen him coming down, right? And Deathwing's on a flank. You generally don't want to be flanked by heroes like Deathwing. You generally don't want to be flanked by Urel. You generally don't want to be flanked by like a D.Va. Uh, these are just heroes you don't want to be flanked by. You can see they're actually using Rexar's bear on the minimap to anchor the bottom flank so the D.Va can't make that rotation for free. But they're not respecting the Deathwing. This is a relatively small mistake to be fair. And then they get 10 and they keep going. D.Va ends up making the rotation and dying. And again, they they got the kill on the D.Va because D.Va, there was an anchor for the D.Va. They saw the D.Va coming. They didn't see the Deathwing coming. 30k goes a little ham here. They probably should have been satisfied with the engage. And then Rexar goes super deep. And they, again, they're going super deep because they have the 10s, but tower aggro. D.Va thinks, hey, I can contribute to a kill in pilot form because I have a bunch of damage. And it's not like I don't have bomb ready or mech ready, rather, not bomb. I can just get back in my mech. And then I get bear stun. In fairness, bear stun is literally the only thing that stops uh, D.Va from getting into mech here because silence puddles on CD. They don't have 10s yet. He literally thought he could get away with this and he could not. Sometimes players are overly aggressive. If you don't interact with the enemy team, you can never make a play. Right? If you if you never step up to the enemy team, you can never make a play. So in a lot of cases, it's a good thing to step up to the enemy team and try to make a play. Now, really good players understand positioning. They understand tracking CDs. They understand what threatens their specific hero in each matchup. And they know when they can do that and when they can't. And better players even know what is my support capable of? How far away am I from my support? What is my tank capable of? KDA players lose games. Is that a MOBA saying? I actually kind of like that saying. So the safe thing there is get in the mech before you get into vision and try to be disruptive. You're less likely to contribute to a kill under those circumstances, but you're likely to be 100% safe. Is that better? In this case, it was obviously better because he died, but doing nothing is probably always worse. That also, to some degree, is a misevaluation of what D.Va's limits are. D.Va can easily be bursted out in pilot. Not everyone is equally good at D.Va. And understanding the limits of individual heroes is very different. Ishbu made the complaint that Liam plays every hero like it's Yurel. I think that's a pretty fair criticism. Because Yurel wouldn't have died there. I don't think this is what shifts the mode into hard mode. Like, those deaths aren't necessarily what shifts the game. It's, it's not knowing when to disengage, not knowing when to go. When you make a mistake in a game, one of the worst things you can do is to try to make the mistake not as bad by pushing for a greater advantage. If you dodge a bunch of cooldowns and therefore the enemy has no cooldowns and you have cooldowns still and everyone's alive, you can re-engage and that's fine. But if you use a bunch of cooldowns and everyone's really low, but you've used all your cooldowns and someone on your team has died, uh, it's time to go. It's actually a really good example of this from a Chinese game way back when, where Zombraxis hold out. The enemy hit 10 first, but their offlaner was still top. The foreman immediately tried to hard engage on the enemy foreman, and they missed everything. So all of their heroics were on, on CD. And Illidan was the offlaner for the Chinese team, and he was bottom. So they re-engaged under Ford, 5v4, down 10 to 9, but the enemy team had no cooldowns. Whereas the four man, since they didn't want to fight and they were just focusing on dodging everything, had dodged everything and they had all their cooldowns. Even though they didn't have heroics, fighting there was correct. So tracking cooldowns is very significant and very difficult. But I don't think that put the game on hard mode. Uh, they still have a lot of wave clear. They still have a very solid draft. It's, it's the feeding additional kills after that made it look worse than it actually was. Watch draft, but why is there a tier pick? <laughs> it seems miserable, doesn't enable anyone, doesn't bring wave clear, seems to be there doing nothing really. Unlucky. So let's do let's do this twice. So let's let's look at the level one wave and see if Pick Kid does this correctly. I assume he does. This is a Johanna. Johanna has an ability called Condemn that's pretty good at clearing waves. Uh, this is a Tyrael. Tyrael is a talent level one called Justice for All, which causes his shield to apply significant shield to all his allies, including his minions. Condemn has a one second warm up. If you W 
a wave right as Johanna is going to condemn it. The Johanna's condemn essentially gets negated, and Johanna is no longer a quote unquote wave clear tank. If Tyrael just follows Johanna around and always W's the wave she's condemning, Johanna is no longer actually contributing wave clear to the comp, which is one of the only things Johanna contributes to a composition. Statistically, Johanna has a terrible win rate in competitive into Tyrael. However, you can't do this. You have to W before the condemn, not after. And you can see, if we go back to the draft, uh, the Tyrael is last picked. So the Tyrael is very much a response to the, the picks that have been available. Tyrael has a lot of mobility. Mobility puts you in a position where you're not as threatened by the Tychus. Tyrael has a favorable tank match matchup into Johanna, something we've gone over on the stream. Uh, Johanna can get really bullied by Holy Ground. Uh, her wave clear gets bullied by W. It is fair to say that it doesn't really enable anyone. Movement speed enables everyone, so Smite is gonna be good for that. The attack speed doesn't really enable anyone in this comp. Like, the Rex are Zag, like these are the best targets. These are not fantastic targets. Uh, you can do, do see that at level seven, Reciprocate was actually taken. Reciprocate does have reasonable wave clear. Uh, back when offlane Tyrael was a thing that was fairly consistently picked, Tyrael's would always go Reciprocate at seven and it actually gives them enough wave clear to double soak. Clear is never bad on Tomb. There are definitely heroes that work better with Tyrael. Zag's actually not an awful one because Zag actually does do a significant amount of auto damage and she has, you know, a, a really good version of Giant Killer at 16. But if you can't go Swift Retribution and you're not a judge, comp because uh, reciprocate is very good with judgment i would question why exactly you picked Tyrael. so i think it's a very fair question but it's not the worst thing there in terms of safety and tank matchup also you do kind of have the rexar to engage right it's not like you have a zero cc comp and you have the uh the stukov root as a follow-up in some sense this is actually misha tank zag offlane doesn't sound right game two rainer unpicked unbanned after first pick medivh on boe ishbu explained that the medivh team doesn't want rainer because damage structure and the enemy team doesn't want rainer because he's weak to medivh dive is rainer unpickable once medivh is back in the equation i wouldn't say rainer's unpickable rainer doesn't do anything to medivh and he doesn't do enough damage with medivh i think those are both fair statements like the knockback is the best thing you got and the knockback isn't terrible with getting portaled on uh, especially with paint them red because you get a nice significant heal but it's not the best thing in the world rainer is far and away the best racer on BOE, and if you have a Medivh comp, you're no longer capable of winning the race. So picking a Rainer into a Medivh comp, as long as you have someone who can stand next to the Rainer and deny aggressive portals. Rainer is a very diveable hero in general, and Medivh portals obviously make diving significantly easier. Would it have helped 30k to have just flat out better race and force Wildheart to always come to them? Would have been pretty good. But, you know, they did something very similar by picking the Greymane and the Tychus. I don't think Greymane really has a lot of mobility either. Greymane doesn't have any self-heal. Like, Greymane seems equally fragile to me. But the advantage of Greymane is he does more damage and he has Curse Bullet into the Diablo specifically. It is a situation where you have to track the cooldown of Medivh Shield to make sure Curse Bullet doesn't get uh, Force of Will. You can't reactively Force of Will, but you can kind of see the Greymane posturing and kind of interpret when they're going to want to do it. And you can always deny uh, follow-up damage on a slide. Assuming they had drafted an actual counter to Medivh portals, I think Rainer could have worked better for their comp. But the two classic counters um, are Mouth and Junkrat. Junkrat is not great. Um, Junkrat's not considered very good on BOE because uh, he doesn't race very well. He really just gives you a significant vision advantage. And Mouth has other specific problems in competitive that constrain your draft. And it's possible 30k didn't want to have those constraints. So Rainer is bad in the Medivh, uh, but you can pick heroes that are good in the Medivh and still pick the Rainer would be my answer. But it, Rainer doesn't become unpickable, certainly. Why this should mind control Sylve and how much better it would be on the Leyline APOC engages or any other engage? I actually don't think it should be mind control. This is called the library combo way back when, the double silence. You had Twilight Dream uh, plus the Silvero. Getting extended periods of silence is really important. Heroes can't push their buttons. A lot of them become not heroes, right? Varian doesn't have a button to push 
that's actually good for anything until four as a tank, right? He doesn't have a baseline stun, doesn't have a baseline engage of any. Auto attackers are generally heroes where it's like, eh, but even though Grimmins an auto attacker, a lot of his value comes from his mobility and he's not mobile if he's silenced. Uh, Tychus, a lot of his value comes from his trait, which he cannot activate if he is silenced. All his mobility comes from his E and his Q, like all his survivability comes from those things in addition to his R and none of those buttons can be pushed. So you have all sorts of combos you can do. You can do Leyline into uh, the APOC, into the stun, into the silence, into another silence. You can silence the support. So one of the things you'll see, particularly with Anubarak comps, is Anubarak will burrow in on a target, immediately try to cocoon the support, so that the support can't save the target that's being focused. You can do something very similar with, with Wailing Arrow. You can APOC combo, chuck the arrow at the support, and pick another target to actually focus down and kill. Uh, when supports can't push their buttons, they can't really save you from dying. So I don't think my control would have been uh, better here. Mind control in general is purely only better if you have some sort of one-shot combo, uh, which they don't really have, or it's better at 20. If you're just doing these giant wombos, silence arrow is obviously going to be better. Game one plus three, Uther first bans. Did Uther show up in scrims? Is this a new, this is a new development? I guess it's medallion related. It's not medallion related. Um, Uther is a wild heart special. So wild heart is willing to play Uther in double sport. They are willing to play Uther as tank for various other heroes uh, to enable so-called so non-standard tanks. It wouldn't terribly surprise me if Wildheart was willing to play Uther as an offlane. Uh, Uther can double soak with Holy Fire at level four. I don't think we've seen that yet. I have played offlane Uther. It's not bad. It's not the best thing in the world. It's not bad. So when you have these heroes, and they're also willing to play Uther as a solo support. So if Wildheart picks Uther, they can go in at least three different directions. Soul support, tank, standard double support, right? And Theoretically, the idea is out there in the community that Holy Fire Uther can technically offline. Is it good? That doesn't matter. They technically can do it. Has Wildheart practiced it? We don't know, right? So that's three directions you know they can go in because they've played it, and if there's a potentially fourth direction that exists out there in the in the HOTS, Hots universe. Wouldn't it really suck to draft against something that can go in so many different directions, and you don't know which one you're drafting into until their very last pick because they can just hide it? They can first pick Uther, and then it's like, meh, what are we doing? You don't know. We might not either. That's a Justin meme, by the way. Justin has said uh, people can't predict his drafts because half the time he doesn't even know what he's doing. So this is not a scrim thing. This is a Wild Heart thing. And everyone who has watched Wild Heart's games knows that they play Uther comps. Doesn't matter if they practice it. It's actually an interesting question. When I was casting the issue, we talked about this a little bit. Week two, week three, a couple weeks ago. When he was on HHE, HHE had to practice a comp in order to execute it. They had to practice it to find what worked and what didn't and how they had to execute it. And then they had to practice it to, to be specific there. Some teams, some players can be like, idea, the idea is complete. I know exactly how to play this comp. And then they can just draft it and shot call it and it works. And they don't have to practice it for it. Uh, Mouth or D.Va foreman, Ishbu sounds like he leans D.Va, but he sees a fair case from Matthew. In competitive, the offlane is not on island. So they have, the basically question is they have both D.Va and Matthew, both of whom are normally considered offlaners. Who should be offlaning? The offlane is not an island in competitive. People will gank you. Matthew is fairly easy to gank. D.Va is not easy to gank. So for me personally, I'd rather have Matthew in the foreman. Also, Matthew does camps faster. So if you have Matthew in the foreman, he's not responsible for double soaking and catching a wave. You can just be like, hey, Matthew, go to a camp. Joe and Cassia will soak waves. And you can see Matthew actually like goes and hangs out and anchors here for D.Va doing the camp. I think you have to ask yourself the question, how likely is it that the offlaner gets ganked? When the Zool tank, I don't think it's very likely, right? Because their only CC essentially is the Zool, which means Zool has to stop soaking. So you see Zool mid, he clears the wave. You don't see Zool bottom six seconds later. You're like, hey, Zool's coming top. And Matthew's like, oh, thanks. And then leaves. And he won't like, he won't get there in time if that is called called crisply, shall we say. But purely for safety, I would have preferred 
the Diva Offling. Uh, second question for my mouth, is Die Alone the correct choice since I feel like E would do more overall, but I'm not a number whiz. So Die Alone, uh, for those people who don't know how it works, only does damage if uh, Mathiel cues exactly one hero that is marked. If you queue more than one hero, it's not going to do very much. It is the default talent in the offlane because frequently you are dueling against one person, so it's relatively easy to proc. You're in team fights, it's not doing very much. I did a stats analysis on the, the reworked E talent. It does help you significantly with mana sustain. It essentially doubles your poke damage, the percent based damage, and it does actually do a, a reasonable amount of damage to really high health targets, even though you run into the damage cap. Dragon Knights, Web Weavers, and Punishers. So E would be the best talent, like hands down, if you were losing. Don't necessarily think that's a problem problem with it, but I, I think the E talent definitely would have been a little better than the four men there. But it just depends on how you're playing fights. If Mathael is allowed to sit on a flank and just harass one person, or sit on the front line and harass just the tank, Dialone should be fine. And I mean, we can, we, we can watch the first fight, you can kind of see how it played out. So we're posturing, we're getting lane prio as 30k, we're shoving up the lane, Wildheart's clearing the lane because you need to clear the lane. We get a good stun going in, we have Valkyrie, oh look we have Valkyrie! I take it back everything I said. If you're gonna do Bless Shield into Valkyrie combos, uh, the target's automatically gonna be isolated, and the extra damage from Die Alone is actually gonna be worthwhile in that scenario. Isn't that fun? You see the talent in the level four and you're like, ah, is that the right talent? But then you you see the, the fights at 13 and you're like, ah, they have a tool to isolate exactly one person, and that talent is good against exactly one person. Haha! 30k versus Wildheart game 3, no shove. This is of course referring to Master Shove at level 10 from Stukov. So Master Shove is a particularly potent counter to Diva Bomb. If you can get the angle correct, you can basically shove Bomb completely away and it negates the value of Diva. It is hard to get the angle right. Uh, Divas can counterplay it by trying to bomb in really awkward places based on the Stukov's positioning so that it's hard for him to actually get it away from his team. You can also send the bomb with boosters. Uh, to make it even harder. But in order for to do that, you have to coordinate booster plus thing. A lot of people just use Diva Bomb whenever they're low on health to not die, which is not the best, not the best way to use the bomb. It, it's not wrong to use the bomb that way. If you're getting focused and you're gonna die and you have bomb up, you should bomb, usually. Not the best way to use the bomb. But they have a pretty significant dive comp here, right? There's a lot of melee. Cassia has relatively short range. So if you get hard engaged and you can swipe everyone away, then the target lives. You're not likely to shove someone away and have the Bless Shield Valk target live. Whereas a swipe, there's an actual chance. So I think that was uh, an adaptation. Uh, Zul is played by the tank player. Would that be considered a main tank Zul game? If so, what conditions do you need to draft a main tank Zul? In my opinion, you need two supports. So what does Joe give you? Joe gives you a reliable engage with Blessed Shield. She gives you wave clear and she has an unstoppable with a huge shield that gives her a ton of survivability. What does Zul give you? Zul gives you wave clear, a semi-reliable engage with root. It's not as good as Blessed Shield, but for the purposes of this song this discussion. It's a semi-reliable engage now that Medallion's out of the game. Does Zul have survivability? Not really. Okay, so in order for Zul to tank, you need to supplement his survivability with something else. Things that increase survivability. Supports. There's an argument for flex Zul, like Deathwing were taken out, Zul were put in, and we have an actual tank. Then I'm fine with that. I'm fine with flex Zul, but I don't love tank Zul. Uh, the very first time we ever saw tank Zul, way back in 2016, it was actually a Zarya main tank, and it was it was Flex Zul. And the Zarya literally just stood there and ate punishment while Zul cleared waves. But because of hero pools, it was the tank player on the Zarya and the flex player on the Zul. That was really Zul main tank, right? And Zarya sort of gives you that ability to have a Zul main tank. So something that increases Zul's survivability is the, what Zul needs to be a tank. And if you don't do that, then you should flex the Zul and have an actual tank. 
I realize Wildheart did win this game, but I don't love this composition. And you can see, like, Zul dies at the start of fights. Uh, actually, let's let's swap over to Stats of the Storm real quick and go to this replay. Uh, Zulin died twice. Wow, Hasuobs ran it down. Four deaths. I think the, the argument here, by the way, that Wildheart is making is that if you have enough supplementary frontline, it's fine. So they have Yorel, who's the tankiest or second tankiest offlaner, depending on how you feel about Bunker, aiding survivability. And you have a Deathwing, who is also supplementary frontliner. And several other uh, teams tried it. Kyocho's played a fair amount of Zul as well. Seemed like Yorel initiated a lot that game. Uh, I mean, Yorel jumped in. Uh, There's a difference between initiating for your team and initiating for yourself. Lots of Bruisers can initiate for themselves. They can jump in and start whacking on people. Initiating for your team, it's a bit different. As long as Zul gets R off in fights, he has done his job in fights, though. Actually, for this comp, that's true, right? So you can... Uh, detailed stats. So this is the theoretical carry as the only ranged, and his team fight hero damage was 23k. Here's Zul, who died and started two fights, but he got his R off every time and did 24,000 team fight hero damage. So I'm not a fan of the non-double support Zulane tank, but for their composition, you know, they had the beef from the Deathwing and the Urel, and they really were just trying to overwhelm Deckard's uh, healing. Deckard is a, is a single target healer. It's really important to think of Deckard as a single target healer in a draft environment. When you have a single target healer, lots of AoE damage is suddenly really hard to deal with. And Zul gives that, especially with uh, Poison Nova. So if you don't play Zul that way, he's basically worse for Jana. Uh, now, Zul has better lane shove. And uh, again, with Poison Nova, his team by damage is significantly higher. Magus is definitely better for double support style of Zul, where the fights are necessarily going to be a little slower. But Poison Nova is better in that comp, specifically. Not a lot of questions about the Wildheart series, actually. Tons of questions about the Oxygen series, though. How do you pick Medivh when you don't have a Medivh player? Oxygen versus Granite Gaming, game one. All right, so this is a meme. I don't know how this meme became so widespread, but I interviewed several players, and several of the players I, I talked to were like, you know, you, everyone needs to have a Medivh player. Whoever gets drafted in the range slots for both teams, uh, every team should draft a Medivh player. So a lot of people thought Madara as a crummy one trick in in-houses because people called him a crummy one trick. And apparently they never checked his profile. And so after, like literally on draft day, a lot of people messaged me and asked why I didn't draft a Medivh player when I had emphasized so highly that every team needed to draft a Medivh player no matter what. I drafted two Medivh players. Priz played Medivh in HGC and he was really good at it. He didn't play it as often as Dre did because of the way hero pulls worked on the, the team, but uh, Priz knows how to play Medivh and Madara also knows how to play Medivh. So I drafted not one but two Medivh players. So I was like laughing and apparently the meme has made it all the way. Was Giant Slayer on Hanzo a mistake? Should he have gone piercing? <sighs> this is a tough question. I definitely feel like normally Giant Slayer gets more consistent value on maps where you don't have a whole lot of interference with the bounces. And into like these health pools, if Giant Slayer hits, the value is going to be enormous. Who is the best NA HCC Medivh player? Uh, I mean, at one point it was Glaurung, but then he roll swapped and never played it again. Like there, there's a timeline here that you got to consider. I do think Piercing would have done more into the all melee comp. I don't think it would have made a difference. It doesn't really feel like... Hanzo Medivh was what we needed. I don't think I don't think you can, you can put that down to a talent mistake. Maybe it would have been a little better, but I don't think it would have saved the game. Uh, the Kira, the all melee comp was an interesting interesting pick by Granite Gaming. Uh, this game you had Madara and Prismon heroes that have been previously played by the other player. Do you think it's beneficial to have overlapping hero pools like this as a potential pitfall as people spread people thin? It just depends on the players. Some players can maintain a lot of heroes really well. Some players can't. I have always advocated for smaller but higher execution hero pools, so you're just better at them. The example I always like to use is Tempest 2016, 
at the summer tournament went all the way through to finals and won with all of their players only playing three heroes. That's not really possible to do any more with six bands instead of four. But Priz has an enormous hero pool. I do think Hanzo is quite difficult though. I think Hanzo may be one of the heroes where only one player should play it. So my answer to that is it depends on the hero you're talking about. Some heroes are harder than others. Definitely Madara is our midi player though. Why did Anna hold the level one talent thing? So for those of you who those of you who did not watch the game live. So anyone who's played Anna, uh, the sleep build is generally the meta build because it puts more pressure on the enemy team and gives you more kill potential, essentially. If you're going to be dived, the grenade build can actually help you heal yourself more than any of the other builds. If you're worried about getting dived, the grenade build is going to help. Also, into Alexstrasza specifically, the full grenade build, even just the level 7, but the full grenade build helps really play into the Alexstrasza. So this is a this is a two-part thing, right? This is a debate throughout the game where our support player is thinking, am I going to get dived? And do I have the correct ability to pressure the Alexstrasza's healing? And this is one of those things you can kind of figure out as the game plays out and you have these uh, few initial team fights. Can my team protector, do we have the heal? Do we have the pressure? Are we positioning well? And you can see right as the first fight starts, Philippe actually banana makes his decision. You also do get to see more of uh, Alex Strauss's build, which is never a bad thing when you're playing a, uh, a matchup like that. Why not main tank Leo? Were you planning to draft something else in the beginning? If so, what? Assuming you can comment. Uh, main tank Leo is generally drafted with double support and we'd already picked the Deathwing. You don't have to draft main tank Leo with double support. It is just safer. I think in order to, to draft main tank Leo here, we would have had to pivot the Deathwing to offlane. Do you think GV Swamp Group thinks W build is the build now on Sonya or was game one and two W for a very specific reason? So here's one of those things that happens. A hero has a build that's viable, not optimal necessarily, but viable. And there's some situations where it might even be the optimal pick. It gets buffed, players start trying it and they're like, ah, oh, this is actually good in XYZ scenario. Way back in 2017, early 2018, when W was first buffed, Koreans actually started playing it. There was a cool one-shot combo that players would do where they pre-prepped the W so that they get the, the free one that does the bonus damage. And they would actually leap Poison Spear W for like max burst. And generally they did it off of a Maev pull. And it's pretty good. Rich also took the talent purely for sieging. So this is a level one talent, Furious Blow. Slime Class deals 50% more damage to the primary target and costs no fury. On level four, Shattered Ground, increased the length of Sizic Slam Splash by 66%, increased its splash damage to 125% of base damage. So Rich actually started taking this on Shrine specifically way back when for two reasons. One, it actually helped him siege more. He would get under one tower and he would start slamming the towers this way and he would actually be able to get walls significantly faster than if he did not have the talent. Also, when the wave is lined up, it gave him more wave clear since minions do triple damage to structures. Having more wave clear means you automatically get more structure damage because your wave is healthier and it gets there faster. Specifically on shrines, he would try to use the splash to steal shrine minions from the other side. Generally on shrines, each team's trying to pull to their side and group up their shrine minions and kill them. And you generally have someone who's trying to snipe the shrine minions. Not generally, but sometimes you have someone who's trying to the shrine, snipe the shrine minions. Shattered Ground can actually allow you to pull that snipe off if you can get one minion in the right position and then W into their shrine minions. So I don't necessarily know if this is meta. I don't know if Swamp's gonna keep taking it, but that was the combo, like way back when. Uh, several very good Sony players were doing it. And I definitely think that buffing those talents has made people go back and look at that tech again. Granite Gaming got triple major shrine control, Diva, Alex, and Sonya, and Oxygen got two, Deathwing and Junkrat. At what point do you get diminishing returns on shrine control? Or if you can get five shrine heroes, you do. This just comes down to like compositions and drafting. Like if you have 
four heroes that are good on the shrine, but the enemy team has heroes that can keep you off of the shrine through like threat of death and just the zoning potential, then you actually don't have any shrine heroes because they're never on the shrine. There is a comp that I love. It's Alexstrasza, Ragnaros, D.Va, Sonya, Tychus. And you have tons and tons and tons of shrine control with that comp. And basically what you do is you stagger out the cooldowns so that you always have a cooldown. So Diva Bomb will secure 10 if you do it correctly. Ragfort will secure 10 if you do it correctly. Alexstrasza will secure 10 if you do it correctly. And uh, Tychus with Odin will secure 10 if you do it correctly. And then Sonya's just there to be annoying, essentially, and do camps and soak. That comp is hard to beat if you've actually tried to fight it on Shrine. If you fight them off Shrine or try to bully them like away from the Shrine and get kills, then it's beatable. So you have to find ways to kill that comp. We were in a situation where they had stronger Shrine control, so we were picking things we thought could kill them. And in particular, we really had to zone the Sonya off the Shrine, which we did not manage to do. Alex, please go over the build. Why not Lifebinder this game? So Alex Raza with Q build has some of the highest throughput of any support, but you have to walk up and pick up the flower every time. When you have Circle of Life, you don't really have that problem. Also, this is triple bruiser, so percent-based healing is gonna enable a lot of healing. You just W in the back line to resustain. When you have a hero who can get 100 to zeroed, that hero needs instant healing, as opposed to they can back up and get a heal. When you can back up and get a heal, and you have relatively high health pools, then Circle of Life suddenly becomes much safer. This is also technically mana sustain once you're finished, uh, because you have the globe running. It wasn't really relevant in this game because no mana, no mana. It does help Hanzo out a little bit. Hanzo does have mana problems. The movement speed just helps you to re-engage. Again, you have to W in the back line for full safety. Fire Within gives Alexstrasza self-sustain. You need some sort of self-sustain in solo support Alexstrasza comps. Q build makes it so that you don't use health anymore for your Qs if you're picking up every flower. Fire Within puts you in a position where you can heal yourself. Cleansing Flame, this is to pair with Falling Sword. So basically, when you have a dive comp, Cleansing Flame is always going to be better than Life Binder because it contributes healing and damage to the dive. The rest of talents are fairly standard. It's unusual to see Ancient Flame with just the level 7, but it's not bad. Is Triple Bruiser Tank the emerging meta? If so, how powerful is having Rutso on your team? I don't know if Triple Bruiser Tank is an emerging meta. Like, if you go look at Hero's Profile composition win rates, Triple Bruiser has been a really high win rate composition for forever. A lot of things that are good are just, again, a question of hero pools. Because we happen to have people like Hasuobs in CCL who play Rexar, you know, we have Rutso who plays Zarya, we have Nick who plays Kerrigan, we have these, these players who play these heroes in the flex spot, we can play these comps. If you play these comps and don't play the heroes, the comps are going to look bad. If you play these comps and play the heroes, the, the, you're going to figure out when the comps are actually good because you're going to actually win some games with them and keep experimenting. I had this problem in HUC where I would be like, hey guys, this comp is probably good. And they were like, no, and they, people would try it and they'd be like, no, this comp sucks. And then I would realize that they didn't know how to play the heroes. Like the person who was playing the hero literally did not know how to play the hero. Granite Gaming not banning Medivh because they beat a game one. This is a Cursed Hollow draft. You, you ban Medivh on Cursed Hollow. Assuming someone knows how to draft Cursed Hollow from first pick and they get Medivh, you have lost the draft. Cascon actually isn't 100% confident in his Cursed Hollow drafts, but I am 100% confident in my Cursed Hollow drafts. I feel like I'm bragging and I really don't mean to, but I have done more analysis of Cursed Hollow drafts from HUC than any other map. I developed a clear rule set for how to draft your solo. Circle protection plus Arcane Explosion plus Vikings the plan. What are the other benefits of Medivh Vikings? The be major benefit of Medivh Vikings is when you have a Medivh comp, you generally want to try to always be together as a four-man. Uh, since there's three Vikings and three lanes, Vikings can be in every lane. The four-man literally never has to split. They can, but they never have to. Normally, it's very difficult to pick that up in an offlaner on such a large map. Also, each Viking that goes through a portal does get a bird. That's actually the most relevant synergy. Going Circle of Protection plus Arcane Explosion is kind of a meme. It does technically work. I've done it. it, it, it I don't think it's necessarily the, the competitive thing. 
The question was, should, should Circle of Protection been picked? My answer is no. Tychus doesn't give camp clear or boss control. Draymond has similar kill pressure on Dibbles. GM can also output hyper carries levels of damage, right? No, he can't. Was Tychus picked over Greymane here? Uh, Tychus was picked over Greymane because he does more damage to Diablo specifically. Also, he does it earlier. Technically at level 10, Greymane can technically do similar levels of damage to Diablo with Curse Bullet and then autos, but Tychus can do it right from level four, or right from level one technically, and then it gets progressively better uh, as the game goes on within the rhythm. Illidu needed to go unending and macro harder, in my opinion. Fun fact, from manual analysis of HTC replays where Illidans went unending hatred, Immolation would have been better macro. Oh, I know Grenade build on Tychus, because I don't think Grenade build is very good. So I've, I've done a, an analysis of this. Grenade build is getting 3k hero damage and 13k PvE damage on average for the level 1 talent. It's getting very similar numbers for the level 7 talent, melting point, and those numbers are pretty lackluster. Whereas Prestige Advantage gives you the range, Combat Condition makes the thing you draft a Tychus for, like people, you should draft Tychus for minigun. You go Combat Condition, the thing you draft a Tychus for is up more often. If you go Laser Drill, then the thing you draft a Tychus for never goes away. He's not, you don't, you don't lose the trait. Sizzling attacks. I'm not a huge fan of Grenade Build Tychus, and the numbers don't seem to support its efficacy. I will say, I find it interesting, there's about 33% more casts of Grenade in builds where people are going Grenade Build Tychus. Isn't the 413 really full together then? I mean, you have Medivh Shield to buffer it. Tychus is a bad win rate in CCL, not impressing me. I believe he has a 34% win rate overall. I'm not sure what it's like at this weekend. Do you feel Falstead should have been picked on the side of Granite Gaming? When could they have picked Falstead? They, I mean, they picked the Dahaka for the global. Essentially could have picked Falstead instead of Illidan, or Falstead instead of Greymane. I don't love that. Maybe it would have been better. Do you feel Immo is troll from Illidan? It would have been amazing if he wanted to split push, but it seems like you guys were giving them, uh, weren't going to give him the chance. So again, Manual analysis, Immolation does in fact split push better. It actually does more structure damage because the minion wave dies faster and since minions do triple damage to buildings. And this is HTC, people were going unending hatred and I manually analyzed those games and Immolation would have always been better for structure damage. Also, in none of the HTC games where unending hatred was picked, did it actually get value in kills. The kills would have happened regardless of what was picked. And there were actually uh, some kills I found that were missed because Battered was not picked. I'm not a huge fan of Unending Hatred in competitive. Some Illidan mains I talked to way back when said it was the best 1v9 talent, essentially saying it's the best talent for 1v1-ing late game. 1v1s don't happen late game in competitive. That's not a thing. So I don't love the talent for competitive. Very good ladder talent. I remember Rich saying way back when that the only reason Unending Hatred had a good win rate on ladder was because it forced you to kill waves and killing waves is actually what win games. <laughs> So it was literally like, questings? Oof. That was literally the reason he thought the talent was good. It's just because it tricked people into actually playing the game correctly. It also does help you do camp slightly faster. Although that's not as significant because it's just like one to two seconds faster. How important is hold position soaking with Vikings and competitive? It varies. It depends on the matchups. It depends on the map. There are some players who don't even use hold position soaking. For those who are curious, hold position soaking means that when you hold position, it won't auto. And you can actually freeze waves with a Viking and it'll just sort of stay there. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. It's hard to get value out of it. You're microing, you know, Vikings all across the map. Vikings get easier the more pressure your four man can put on the enemy team because the more afraid they get to step up. And in those scenarios, it can be really good because you're off the map. You're putting the wave in a position where they have to step up to soak it and they don't know if they're gonna get poor bone and die. In what situations would level 13 jump be the pick for Vikings instead of Nordic Attack Squad? I'm gonna be slightly controversial here and I'm gonna say you should always go Nordic Attack Squad in competitive. Jump will allow you to play extremely aggressively and get out safely, but you have play again. You, like you can play extremely aggressively, leave one Viking out, 
and then play again and come back in before school downs. There was a strat in EU once, and I'm not I'm not making this up. There was an actual strat in EU to run Leaming out of mana by yeeting Vikings at her one at a time. You yeet two Vikings at her, you play again, you yeet all three Vikings at her, and she's out of mana. The fight is now technically 4v4 because Leaming has no mana. This was an actual thing an HUC team did in EU. I'm not I'm not making this up. But a Leaming with no mana is way worse to have on your team almost than a dead viking so jump was the meta talent because purely because of the, the sheer survivability added to the vikings and the vikings are relatively fragile as you get better and better at vikings and you can judge more when to go in nordic attack squad adds an unreasonable amount of damage to high health targets um it's it's giant killer like for those of you who don't know what this talent does Let's go to, go to Vikings. While Olaf, Balog, and Eric are near each other, their basic attacks deal bonus damage equal to 1.25% of maximum health enemy heroes, right? So here's Falstad with a generic giant killer talent, 1.5%. This is 0.25% less, but it happens three times because there's three Vikings. In a, in a sense, this is the best percent damage talent in the whole game. Also, all three Vikings together do as much auto attack damage as a Greymane. So you're adding more than Greymane damage by taking Nordic Attack Squad. This is an insane talent. When I read this talent in the patch notes, I was like, that's going to be real dumb. But you do have to be better at Vikings to actually keep them alive without jump. Why not Flare on Rexar here, game four? He's the bot anchor and Flare is probably the best vision tool in the game. Flare is a really good vision tool, but wave clear is also technically a vision tool. So you clear a wave and then you back up and now you're out of vision. Being out of vision is as much of a tool as having vision of the enemy team because they don't necessarily know where you are. Misha herself is also a vision tool. Misha doesn't really contribute much in terms of wave clear. So when you're playing Rexar, you should be using Misha to scout for you under most circumstances. So you, you know, put her in a bush, you put her on a rotational path, you have her go check the camp for you, whatever. Flare gives you the option of having two flanks anchored instead of one in exchange for clearing the wave a little bit slower. This is not hugely relevant on Dragonshire. Dragonshire is a very rotational map. Clearing the wave faster enables you to rotate faster. Uh, I always say it wave clear enables rotations. So there are maps where there's tons of planks and it's really hard to control vision. And I actually think that Flare would be competitively viable on those maps, but Dragonshire is not one of the maps where you really need it. Why not healing static against five melee? Because you don't go healing static on Murden ever. It's mathematically inferior. I'm gonna keep saying this every week. 15 minute game, Rexar gets caught by Silence in Tomb. He gets feigned death off because no blast from the Silence ends. What was JoJo saving it for? Okay, so there's a saying that I love, which is that there's no kill like overkill. Someone's not dead until you kill them, as it turns out. If you have an ability that will help you secure a kill, rip it. People should die in competitive. Like, I want to give you guys an idea. We're calling on comms here that this entomb is happening and we're collapsing to, to make the save, right? Here, Chris actually tries to cast boars so that we can get the counter engage. And he actually cancels his own cast of boars by feigning too fast. He doesn't even, he doesn't even just hold down feign and try to get the feign. He's actively looking for the counter engage. I don't know why you wouldn't bless here. I will say that you do have to overlap the CC in competitive, people should be holding on the button. So one of the things that a lot of people don't know is if you hold down a button instead of spamming it, and it's it's something that's like instant cast, like Diva Mech Bomb or Ice Block, it will actually instantly cast on the first available frame where you're not CC. So you have to layer the CC so that you have no period where the person isn't CC. So not only does he have to blessed here, was Virulent Reaction a suboptimal pick here given that Charism would get Cleansing Touch only three levels later? So for anyone who's curious, it's severe interaction. Detonating a waste of pustule on an enemy who is inside of lurking arm roots them for two seconds. Kerazim has the 16 cleanse. Bear in mind, even if you cleanse the root, you might accidentally dash into the silence as Kerazim. And if you're in the silence as Kerazim and therefore can't dash out and you get CC'd in that silence, you're still dead. The root still forces Kerazim to 
play somewhat riskily. I'm supposed to say something here from Zane Hyde. If you're interested in coaching or educational HOTS content, Zane Hyde and I have a Patreon running at patreon.com slash nexusschoolhouse with new content daily. That's a lie. We're a little bit behind. Go check it out if you're interested in improving or would just like to support the show. And edited versions of the CCL post show, Doe interview, and Turk interview will be up on our YouTube by the end of today. That part is true. Zane has been very clean with the editing. How did Priz live through the diva dive? We go in, right? We see Priz is in some trouble here. We're gonna say he's in some trouble here. We get the collapse, we get the, the body block even from the Drahana. And Artie has a Q on him, and then he gets the immediate D from Stukov. And we don't, the one thing we don't have here that we're supposed to have is a hat. So the way the Abathur comp kind of works, in particular the way it, it tr is trying to counter the Murky, is we always have an Abathur hat on whoever the dive target is, and Abathur hat can actually kill Murky, and if you kill Murky, then Octo's not good. Uh, that doesn't work post 20 in quite the same way, but Priz gets hard dived here. He does have the 75 armor from the D, and all the cooldowns at this point have been burned. We got a really good blind off as well to shut down the minigun. So yeah, uh, as it turns out, Stukov is an exceptional burst healer. Generally speaking, a lot of kills in Heroes of the Storm are actually confirmed by auto attacks. So you use abilities and the abilities get them really, really low, and then you actually like auto them once or twice and they die. People underestimate how much damage autos do in general. Like one of the things that pros will always tell you is that you should be auto attacking regardless of what hero you're on in fights. And a lot of people don't auto even, like Jaina's auto sucks. I think it's like 74, 76 damage or something at level one. But you, you know, you start a fight by pushing all your buttons. If the person's still alive, you have no buttons left, you gotta auto them. So we get beautiful slide here, nearly a max range slide. We try to get the peel off with uh, the condemn. We do, we do get a little bit of you know power on the EDC here. We get the silence underneath so that buttons cannot be pushed, and then we get the Q that's already rolling goes off, and we actually get some body blocks here as well. Right, so the ranged abilities, missiles from Diva don't manage to get the hit because Banana stands in front of them, and then he actually swipes everyone away uh, for the peel as well. Are you saying my probe A build is not legit? It is definitely not. Again, this is why I don't like the build uh, for grenade. Grenade build, you, you throw the grenade in, it does some additional damage, but Tychus is an auto attack hero. If you're not auto attacking, Tychus' value is just not at the same place. Uh, Nick can't close the gap because of the slowing sands, the slowing sands also helps. One of the things in better pots that you're trying to do consistently is split fights. In an ideal world, all five enemy heroes would be focusing one target all the time. It would be like this, it'd be like, Shh, and then that person would just die. The reason you haven't seen a lot of five-man focus in C-Scale is the CCL teams are actually fairly good at controlling vision. It's not perfect yet, but they're fairly good at controlling vision. They're fairly good at managing different chokes. And so you actually frequently cannot get all five heroes onto the same person. It's just not being allowed to happen. And in those scenarios, you have to be much more efficient with your abilities. And so one of the reasons that I think people think grenade build on Tychus is quite good is because you can always reach with the range of level one to contribute some damage. It's not all your damage. It's not a lot of damage, but it's some damage and it can always reach. But yeah, Priz, Priz lives there because we don't allow him to get five-man focused, and then we have the, the support for the, the burst heal, which is one of the reasons we picked Stukov. And if we'd had the hat there as well, like, it gets even, gets even worse. How did Murky end up with no stacks? So this is talking about the level four talent. Samuro can self-cleanse. So I think a lot of people play against really bad Samuro players who allow their clones to be farmed for quests. If you want to play Samuro well, step one, don't let your clones be farmed for quests. I don't think the Tychus build is bad, by the way. I, I don't think it is getting as much value as people think it is, but I think there's situations where it could be the good build, but the fact that it's been sort of the default build in, in CCL is something I don't approve of. 
So this is 2050. What happened to Monk's Cleanse? Nothing happened to Monk's Cleanse. Uh, we actually, he actually clicked on Red Robot and uh, autoed him instead. Uh, this is a problem that a lot of heroes have, actually. If you click on an overlapping hitbox, it actually hots prios the aggressive option instead of the passive option, the assist option. So you have to be really careful with your clicks for, for quick abilities. Mouse accuracy matters quite a bit, is the takeaway here. What's the default Tychus build be in your opinion? If you watch a lot of the stream, you're gonna you're gonna know that I don't believe in default builds. <laughs> Most heroes have significant talent options that make matches significantly harder, significantly easier, depending on the map and the comp they're up against. I like the grenade build because it typically allows, it allows you to trade favorably with heroes that typically outrange you and you can't just can't interact with. That is something that the build does, but if you can't interact with anyone as a Tychus, then the Tychus draft wasn't very good. Tychus should be able to interact with the enemy tank or an enemy backliner. When Tychus was meta and he was OP way back like after his rework 2018 HGC? Like 2017? I don't remember what the year was. Tychus just killed everyone. Like it didn't matter. You just followed your tank around and got on him. He was essentially a mage. Like minigun is a burst ability. So you just followed up on your tank CC and all you had to do was have positioning and such that you could follow up on your tank CC. It wasn't that hard, but press the attack gives him, you know, his range back. So if that worked then, why aren't people just taking press the attack and playing Tychus the way it worked back then? Is this flailing swipes because massive shove won't go very far in most fights due to geography? It's more about the fact that there's multiple dive heroes, right? So you're not going to be able to get the perfect angle on the diva bomb every time. Garden doesn't have a ton of chokes, but the chokes it does have are ones you're constantly fighting around. So that can be really difficult. But you're also not just trying to hit one person. You're trying to hit sometimes two or three people. You're trying to you're trying to knock away Monk. You're trying to knock away Tychus. You're trying to knock away ETC. We we're going for a lot of peel here because Chromie can win the game by herself if she just doesn't die. Uh, and the way you have backliners not die is peeling for them. Especially at 20 with the triple swipe, uh, it's quite a bit better. How tilting was this game? I'm gonna be honest, this game was not tilting at all. I was a competitive chess player when I was younger. I would go to tournaments. I am a professional ballroom dancer. I have, I've competed at professional dance events, both in choreo and in like Jack and Jill events, which is when you get a partner who signed up and you dance with your partner and you dance with another partner and then you, you make up the rounds and like, so you have to be improvised. Uh, wins happen, losses happen. Sometimes you make a mistake and it's all on you. Sometimes the enemy team is just better. But if you do enough competitions, Winning and losing doesn't tilt you. You come out of it with this attitude of, why did I lose? What can I do better? And I, I think that's a healthier attitude for improving. I will say that I never reached the top echelons of anything that I've competed in. So maybe getting tilted is actually a factor that helps you improve and I just lack that. I don't know, but I, I don't really get tilted by uh, by games. My question is always, what's next? You know, how do we do better? Even when my question is, what's next? How do we do better? <laughs> Uh, the auction boys do not get a break. It's always how could we have done better. How are the players on a scale of mental boom learn something? I mean, even when we were down 0-2, and I tweeted about this, everyone's mental game was very strong. I'm extremely proud of my team this weekend. We had some rough games, and we didn't really let it affect us at all. I'm very much looking forward to our team meeting later today. Madara would like everyone to know that the diva bomb that killed him mid, right at the end of the game, that he did not see coming because he was hatting Monstro trying to uh, pressure them to back so they could not end the game. Caster's caught it on stream right here. This had 45 overkill. All right, so this question is very specific, and I'm going to tell you guys this is a hard question to answer. 
2420, Monk goes from 4,180 health to 223 health with the Chromie spell, Abathur Hat, and Stukov Swipe. Should Stukov have AA'd there instead? Also, should Stukov have gone after Monk there or was retreating the best course of action? Basically, did Banana screw up in this moment or did he play as he should have? So you guys can see it, this is at full speed. Nazmus goes on, having used all of his tools, he's now isolated and in a, in a bad position. At this point, the fight is basically over. Right. Uh, in competitive pots, one person dies, you just want to leave. You don't want to potentially feed more kills and have the game snowball completely out of control. Unless you can immediately get a counter kill and like you see it, it's time to start figuring out, okay, how do we back up? We're in a good position to back up here, kind of, in the way we're positioned, but we're not in a good position to back up here in the sense that Monk has movement speed and we don't have movement speed. <laughs> So backing up is a tough call to make here without forts alive. If forts were alive, the distance to safety would be much, much easier. Distance to safety is a, is a real thing that you need to consider when you're engaging in uh, in any fight, but late game fights especially. So here it is, Yasu takes a ton of damage, actually self sets him up for it. And here's where he's just like completely out of health and he doesn't heal. Now Banana's moving away. Banana's moving away because the correct call is, is to stop the bleeding. However, with Joe dead, there's really, like, he's not gonna get out of here. So maybe it's correct going for the counter kill, but that's not what you were thinking like two seconds ago before the Joe died. Two seconds ago, you were thinking about, okay, how do we, you know, get the counter kill, but then Joe dies and you're like, okay, how do we get out of here? Changes in games can happen in a, literally a second. In a second, you can go from, hey, we're fighting and we're winning to, oh my God, we need to leave. And that sort of difference can make you not wanna, not make the instantly correct decision. Oxygen versus Granite Gaming. Why does Granite Gaming always hurt my fantasy draft so much? I don't know. Stop underrating Granite Gaming. Granite Gaming has a coach who was the third best tank in EU during HUC. He was arguably the second best vision control tank in EU. Bad Benny Hots. Hangs out in chat sometimes. Granite Gaming is full of some very experienced players. So don't sleep on Granite Gaming, guys. Everyone's been sleeping on Granite Gaming for some reason. I don't, I don't know why. They've consistently improved every week. Just because a team starts out slow doesn't mean they're gonna stay slow. I would not be at all surprised if the, not to make any unnecessary predictions here, but I would not be at all surprised if the finals playoffs was Granite versus Oxygen. And that would be a very fun best of seven. Week one, not everyone had even like been scrimming consistently because not every team hit the ground running with a, a solid scrim schedule where everyone like knew when they were available and could play together. Was there a better pick than Rainer? So we have the situation here where D.Va can do camps, but D.Va also spam waves. Zara can do camps, but it's really slow. Tyrael and Lucio can't do camps. Uh, you need camping. Like you need murking on Cursed Hollow, both for getting the camps and for clearing the camps. This is not an optional part of the draft. You need someone who can murk, particularly into a Lost Vikings comp where they're gonna be getting camps and potentially shoving a lane if you don't have a good response. And you have a relatively weak early game, which Zeratul is relatively weak early game. Um, he doesn't really get great until seven. Ideally, Zeratul is also just hunting the Vikings all game and trying to prevent the Vikings from being good. So your three main of Tyrael, Lucia, Rainer needs to be able to do all the camps and deal with the four-man push of potentially of Stukov, Tychus, Grey, and Varian. Rainer has a lot of good self-peel with the knockback. Grey, Main, and Varian are both kind of divey heroes. Uh, Rainer can do camps better than like almost any other hero. So there may well have been a better pick than Rainer. You maybe have something that gives you a little bit more wombo follow-up for the Zera tool. Uh, Jaina can do camps. Jaina hasn't seen a lot of play in CCL. There probably is a better pick than Rainer there, but there's nothing wrong with the Rainer. And you generally do want an auto-attacker of some kind with uh, Tyrael. So Tyrael has something he can enable with Swift Red at seven. Uh, if you're not gonna go judgment memes, you should be picking something that Swift Red is good with. Otherwise, why pick Tyrael? Why are we seeing so much Sony play? Sony's good. I actually think Sony's a little underrated. Uh, I think she was underrated even before she got her changes. But again, 
a patch comes through, a hero gets changed, people start playing with the hero, and people sometimes remember, oh, actually, this hero's not bad. I don't necessarily think that's the way it should work, but it often is the way it does work. Varian is very good in Tychus, for the record. Varian may actually be the best anti-Tychus tank, because Tychus's damage is all autos, and if you can just go Warbringer at 10, so you don't have to go Protected, and therefore you have the double parry charge. But I don't think there's anything wrong with this draft. I, I actually don't understand this question. Like, I feel like it's trying to be mean to Chili Mountain in some way. I will ding people for poor execution. I will ding pros for poor execution, but I'll ding pros more for not doing prep and not having a good idea of how the game works. Because execution is something that's harder to practice in a 5v5 environment, whereas knowing stuff is, the, the information is all out there. Like a lot of drafts that worked in HGC still work today. And you can go watch the VODs and see, okay, this is what they were doing. Then actually doing it yourself is not the same thing. There's tons of stuff that I personally know how to do perfectly in theory, and I can't push the buttons. Like I just can't do it. Does Sylv need Q on one here? Doesn't Overwhelming Affliction just do more? Uh, Overwhelming Affliction does do more. Uh, I would actually argue that Overwhelming Affliction's best matchup is into Garrosh, specifically. I'm actually surprised by this, because Ultralisk is an EU player, and Overwhelming Affliction is the dominant pick. So, I don't know. Should Sylv have gone Armor Reduce in front of Windrunner? So, yes. I think Sylv should have gone Armor Reduce in front of Windrunner. In my opinion, Sills three talents. Windrunner is a 1v9 talent. You take it when you have to carry. For the purposes of competitive, if there is a specific backliner that has to die and the enemy team has limited peel and you have a vision advantage so you can E onto the enemy team with Festering Wounds and kill that person completely by yourself, then Windrunner is pickable and competitive. I have not seen a draft where I think that's realistic <laughs> uh, so far in CCL. Armor Reduce helps your entire team do more damage and it Again, in competitive, we're always trying to focus the same target. There is an argument here that they already have an armor shred uh, in Critter Eyes at 16 for the for the initial kill. So having two armor shreds, there's some like unnecessary overlap there. Uh, but if you don't need that, then the combination of Lost Soul plus Remorseless puts you in a situation where you have a lot of damage. I think the the argument here that's trying to be made is that Cassia is your sustained damage and therefore still needs to go for more burst. Uh, and Windrunner is technically more burst, but I don't love it. Personal opinion, I don't love it. Armor Reduce is mostly for mind control. Armor Reduce is for when you can focus the same target. That's it. If, if, if even one other person is focusing the same target with you, Armor Reduce is more damage. And the Shred is more valuable. Like, killing a target is better than getting them low. Windrunner is heavy mobility. It's more personal burst. And, like, if I was telling someone, hey, you wanna, if you want a 1v9 on ladder, then go Windrunner. But for competitive, I don't think Windrunner is... Windrunner is, should be extremely niche for competitive. No globals for Chili Mountain. Oh, no, this is game three. We want game two, right? So almost every time you have a Varian, the Varian's goal is to get picks. Really that simple. And every time you have double support, you're trying to fight because double support sucks at macro and is really good at fighting. Stugov is one of the better macro supports. He ke technically can solo clear waves with Silence Puddle. Uh, it's still not good. Uther can actually clear waves if he goes Holy Fire at four, but he did not. So Red wants to fight. On Sky Temple, you should always be able to trade, especially if you have globals. So Blue wants to literally never fight and get ahead on structures and just keep lanes shoved as hard as possible and only take fights where they have a strict numbers advantage. And they get the strict numbers advantage by having least two and potentially three if they go stage dive. I actually think that SSK has the easier comp in terms of execution. Pick comps are always easier to execute than macro comps. It's just the way it works, because in terms of macro, you always need to have good control of vision as well as really efficient use of abilities. So CM's comp is harder, but better. Uh, SSK's comp is easier, but worse. Chili Mountain forced 4v5s with globals though, they lost those fights. Yes, they did. I mean, it's really easy to force a 4v5 because the enemy team will always take that. <laughs> Forcing 4v5 is the easiest thing in the whole game. <laughs> uh, uh, um. 
SSK wipes CM outside what was the bot keep wall and goes back to secure the ammo. Was this the right call or should they have looked to end? It's just a matter of not having a wave. You can't end through a fort. So there is an HCC game. There was one HCC game on Tomb where a team had to turn in, got a five man wipe at bottom fort. The fort was already half dead. They killed it. They had a Medivh. They portaled over the wall, killed just the keep and killed core as the enemy team was rezzing. There were a lot of things that went into that being an exceptional possibility that could actually happen. They had the Medivh portal, uh, so they didn't have to bypass the sidewall. They didn't take any free damage from bypassing the sidewall going in. They got a full five man wipe. They were right at the fort already. The fort was nearly dead. So here we have to travel. Actually, why did I, why? No, I, for some reason I, I thought I had this the other round. Why don't they just end? Their core damage kind of sucks. Like it's just Cassia. They could push the wave up though. 10 seconds? So two of those kills happened way earlier. Uh, the Immortal's just safer here. If this were an actual five man wipe where all the death timers were the same, like they get the last kill and then it's 12 and 15. You can see it, like Ultralisk is thinking about it, but basically you, you go core when death timers are longer is the takeaway. Sometimes there are exceptions, but those exceptions are exceptional enough that I remember them years later. <laughs> also, even though minions do a lot of damage to uh, buildings, core is like catapults help you more than actual minions do because core clears out minion waves very, very quickly. But like you're low on resources, their death timers are short. You're, you're probably going to gain your advantage. Who is the best player on Chili Mountain and why is it Galne? Well, uh, Galne has the only player in CM who has never lost a game in CCL, technically, so. That's clearly why Galne is the best player on, CC on uh, CM. SSK look good while rotating players through the roster during a series. I believe I remember you saying it's typically best to keep with a core roster. Do you think SSK's performance is a point in favor of playing your swaps working or more of a case of weaker opponents making everything look good? I think this is a case of weaker opponents making everything look good, unfortunately. But again, as we went over at the start of the show, Chili Mountain, this is the first week they played with the roster and we don't even know if this is their actual roster. Like they could still swap out their support. Their team could look very different two weeks from now. It takes a while for people to get uh, practiced up. The casters keep harping on the bad synergy of Rainer and Tyrael and how it really hurts the comp of Chili Mountain. Are they on money at this creek? How do you feel that CM doesn't draft generally? I don't see why Tyrael Rainer is bad. Like Tyrael wants an auto attacker. Rainer's an auto attacker. The major problem with Rainer is he just doesn't do enough damage. Who's Galne? Galne Gunner. He's in chat. He's the other pickup uh, that Chili Mountain made during their last trade in addition to Gia. He is a support main from EU. Uh, one who I was personally surprised was not picked during drafting. Uh, Sim versus crowd control game one. So there's not a timestamp here, but the question is basically crowd control doesn't seem shy to burn a fair number of basic ability cooldowns to kill Misha. Is that a fair trade, a good way to deal with Flex Rexar? Yeah, uh, there was a joke way back when that Misha was the real hero and Rexar was just hit the handicap for re for Misha being such a good hero. They've rebalanced Rexar a little bit since then. Uh, the actual Rexar has a little bit more power now and Misha has a little bit less, but you're essentially killing a stun, right? If you think of it that way, would you blow a bunch of basic abilities to negate a stun? It's like a pre-cleanse almost, right? Killing Misha is like a pre-cleanse. Cleanse at various points in the game has been considered literally the strongest talent in the game by a lot of people. Yeah, it's a good way to deal with Misha. As long as you're gonna back up and not fight immediately after using all his cooldowns. That might be bad. Game two, Rex is very useful as Misha dies. Uh, current Rexar is actually pretty useful, even when Misha's dead, because he actually does a fair amount of auto damage, but that was not true before. Rexar's base auto damage right now is quite good. Uh, how do you feel Sim executed their comp? How difficult game they set themselves up for this draft? I mean, they executed their comp pretty well until the late game, and then they kept splitting whenever they won fights. And you can't, like, if you win a 5v5 by killing one person, and then one person leaves and then shows in the wave, or shows capping a tower and there's four people alive, certain kinds of teams are going to be like, hey, that's a 4v4. Let's go, let's, 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 let's go take the 4v4. Crowd control in particular is a team that's going to be like, let's go take the 4v4. I don't think they executed the second stage of their comp very well. First stage, getting the initial pick in a team fight, great. Second stage, not losing the counter engage, not so good. 6.15 game time. 
Question is Sim fails on their boss invade despite getting the first kill and mosh pit whiffing. Was this a 50 50 engagement where the stronger mechanical team won or a misplay from Sim? So crowd control is here, so I've crowd control doesn't spawn the tornado on the left, which actually gives simplicity a pretty good advantage going into this. They have the global top. Diva is also top, so this is a situation where Diva should be able to get here first no matter what. Masquerade shows, which doesn't necessarily have to happen. And we get the uh, we get the fight going on here. Well, and there's there's a there's a question you always have to ask: Are we playing for kills? Or are we playing for the point? If we're playing for the point, you let them finish the boss, and then you fight them. If you're playing for kills, you can just engage on them. It's a question you have to ask. So clearly simplicity here is playing for kills. Is playing for kills correct? The Like they had a huge flank, they have the global coming in. Was this heal actually necessary? They get a really good heal. Oh, but Brightwing, so you can see the Brightwing heal was gonna come in, then Brightwing is still top. Diva actually cancels the back. This is, you can't Z envision. So as soon as Brightwing starts to Z, Diva's like, oh. So way back like 10 seconds ago when we called their own boss and we're looking for the invade, they have to give Brightwing a second to get out of vision. And hopefully Diva doesn't realize Brightwing's getting out of vision so she can Z. So this is still a 4v4. They do get the initial blow up, which is great, but they don't have a healer. Now, when you don't have a healer, healers are really important in Heroes of the Storm. When you don't have a healer, you can only take short fights. You can no longer take long fights. So the short fight is now already over. Any continuation of this fight is now a long fight. Brightwing Z will be up in 10 seconds since it was interrupted. Um, she, presumably she can get in and they can, you know, posture for the point. They're now on the wrong side of the map. They forget the point exists for a second. Lutana's on the point. I was just better in decision making overall and uh, probably better comms. They probably didn't call that stuff far enough in advance. Because again, Brightwing should have already been there. What second damage are you looking for when you draft Medivh? Uh, it just depends on what the enemy team comp has. Some, like, technically any damage could work with Medivh. We've seen a lot of different damage back in HTC. We saw, like, Rainer comps, we saw Jaina comps. It needs to be a damage that can kill the enemy team. Nick played Kira in two different games. Where do you think she fits in the meta? I have no idea where Kira fits in the meta. I've played a lot of Kira because I'm, I'm leveling into 15. I have seen Kira played. I have been told by people that Kira wins certain offlane matchups, and I've been told by this by different people that Kira loses those same offlane matchups. As far as I can tell, Kira does a lot of spread damage and has a stun. Those seem like good things into certain comps. Are they good enough? I don't know. I literally have no idea. She also seems to punish clumping, and uh, people clump more than I would like them to. Is there a good rating or measurement to judge the team's past win-loss record in maps score to predict future results? For example, is it good to judge game length, kill ratios on certain maps, results of a good discrimination for which teams are more likely to have future success? With a large enough sample size, there's a lot of things you can look at. Uh, way back when with HTC and I had a huge sample of replays to pick from, I could tell you who was like better on certain heroes in terms of individual hero stats. I can tell you like who is very likely to win on a given map teams had significant advantages and disadvantages on certain maps that were notable. With the current data set, there's no objective way to do that. Uh, the best thing you can do is, you know, look at the current teams that they're playing. It was a 3-0 stomp, but it was against the worst team. It was a 3-0 stomp, but it was against like the fourth best team. Like that's what you have to do. And the last question, which took the longest to prep for, lowest death count offlaner until now. There's more to death than just dying. There's the percentage of time you spend dead on average. There's the total time you spend dead, and those numbers can be misleading if you don't have both of them together because of varying game length. There's total deaths, which can be very deceptive because if you play more games, you're likely to have more total deaths, but if you get stomped and therefore play less games, you're also likely to have more total deaths. And then there's solo deaths. Yes, all the replays for CCL are available on the CCL Discord and I have a personal database running of those stats, uh, but anyone could make one. So Nasmus has spent 4.4% of his time dead on average. That's 54 seconds per game. 
on average. He has 1.5 deaths per game on average, and he has died a total of 31 times, but he has died solo three times, meaning no other allies within a certain radius. I actually don't know what the exact radius is for the replay. I reached out to a couple of uh, people who like looking at replays, like the technical side, and they didn't know either. So, uh, Zergling has spent 6.2% of every match dead. That is a total of one minute and 13 seconds of dead. He dies an average of 2.4 times per game, and he has had 48 total deaths, but he has never died solo. Darkmok has been dead for 7.7% of every game. That's a total time of 1 minute and 25 seconds. He dies 2.3 times per game on average and has had 34 total deaths. And I'm going to tell you guys, you're going to think I'm making these numbers up because three, four out of the eight offlaners in CCL have exactly 34 deaths total. And I thought I was losing my mind last night. So Dequaza, uh, Liam, and Kyotra all have exactly 34 total deaths in CCL. <laughs> Ugh. Losing my mind. Uh, Dequaza's 5.6% of the time is dead. Time dead, 1 minute, 4 seconds. Average deaths per game, 1.7. No solo deaths. Liam, 6.2% of the time dead. 1 minute, 21 seconds dead on average per game. 1.8 deaths average per game. And 2 solo deaths. Nintori, 5% time dead. 1 minute of average game time. 1.4 deaths average per game. And no solo deaths. Cure, 5.9% of the time dead, 1 minute 8 seconds, 1.8 average deaths per game, and 32 total deaths, and he's died alone once. Darkmok has died solo one time. I'm sorry if I didn't say that. I thought I did. Highest XP contribution for an offlaner. Nazmus, 947 XP per minute. So there's, there's something you have to consider here. Kill participation is going to increase your overall XP because you share XP for kills. Total XP contributed can also be somewhat deceptive because teams that execute different kinds of lane swaps the offlaner might have less experience contributed. And then XP per minute can vary by game time because as the game goes along, minions are worth more and more experience. So Nazmus averages 947 experience per minute. He has 75% kill participation and he contributes 18,000 experience per game on average. Zergling, 949 experience per minute, 86% kill participation, so significantly higher, but he only contributes an average of 17,231 experience per game. Darkmok, 809 experience per minute, 67% kill participation, and 14,362 experience contributed per game. Is there any stats on my point out why CM is struggling so much? Yes, but CM's not paying me for free coaching. It's kind of an oxymoron. Dequaza, 866 experience per minute, 86.4% kill participation, and 17,158 experience contributed on average per match. Liam, 943 experience per minute. They're not in order. These are just the order I type them in. 86.2% kill participation and 19,287 experience on average per game. And again, I told you guys why these won't be absolute stats because game length can vary the, the contribution a lot. A single longer game could really skew stats really high. 909 experience per minute for Nintori, 72.7% kill participation and 17,682 experience soaked per game. Kyocha, 1,001 experience per minute. 76.5% kill participation, and 19,611 experience contributed per game. So the, the answer, actual question, a highest XP contribution offlaner is... Kyocha. Cure, XP per minute, 843. Kill participation, 94.1%. So Cure wins kill participation, uh, handily. And 15,581 experience soaked. And that's it. 
for Inside the CCL, week five. I'm 54 minutes past my intended end time, even though I started a half an hour early. This show is getting ridiculous. I love you guys for all your questions. Uh, thank you to Doa and Turk for coming on for the interviews. Um, thank you guys so much for all the follows and all the subs for the support. I really appreciate it. Just thank you guys so much for everything. Uh, this show has been a joy to produce, even though it is exhausting. Our, our audience has been going up every week, gotten so much good feedback from, like even, even Turk, uh, you know, on his interview, unprompted, said it was his favorite content for CCL. So that made me feel amazing. Thank you guys so much. That's all I got. Make sure to check out the Patreon because Zane will uh, be mad at me if I don't shout it out. It's uh, Nexus Schoolhouse on Patreon. But thank you guys so much. And remember, this is a stream where we never lose. We always win. We learn something. Learning is always a win. Have a good night, everyone.